Before we dive into today's conversation with Kim John Payne, a conversation for parents and for everyone who has the pleasure of being around children, we want to remind you that we have a special opportunity coming up just for therapists. The first Practice of Being Seen retreat is being held in the Catskill Mountains this August. For more about revision, explore your stories, shape your future, please visit us at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. Today's episode is brought to you by Plum Deluxe, organic, fair trade, loose leaf teas made fresh every week. The Practice of Being Seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships, and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is The Practice of Being Seen. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today's guest is Kim John Payne. He has been quietly and passionately working to help tens of thousands of people give voice to the feeling that something is not okay about the new normal of overwhelm that surrounds so many of us. He offers doable ways to realize the hopes and values we have for ourselves and build deep connections with our children that gives families resiliency and simple joy. A consultant who's worked with more than 230 schools in the United States and educational associations around the world, Kim's books have been translated into 27 languages. His 2009 book, Simplicity Parenting, was a number one bestseller. And his next highly anticipated book, How to Be at Your Best When Your Kids Are at Their Worst, will be published in 2018. And now, our conversation with Kim John Payne. Kim, I'm so happy to have you with us here today. Thank you. Kim, I've gotten the pleasure of seeing you speak twice locally in my community. And each time, I walk away with such gems that just resonate on such a deep personal and professional level. And so I'm so excited that you agreed to come on our show today. Oh, totally my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Mm -hmm. Thank you for taking us up on it. (laughs) You know, the last talk that I, I went to with you, you were talking about how we can be our best when our kids are at their worst. And there was a lot in that talk that deeply resonated about the, the idea of pinging and and how um, how we all kind of find our, our grounding and our safety, um, our safe places, and how we hold e- and see each other. And I was wondering if that would maybe be a great place for us to start. If you can maybe talk into that a little bit and, and let us know how that resonates for you. Well, sure. You know, the um, it, one of the questions and one of the like, how can we be at our best when our kids are at our worst? And one of the one of the sort of myriad uh, layers in that lofty aim of trying to be centered when our kids are uncentered is to is to know when where when our kids are, are are trying to get their bearings when they've lost their bearings and what they're they're doing essentially is trying to almost like they're using us to be they're like echolocating they're trying to they're trying to use us to find 
where they're emotionally at because they've lost it. And the, the metaphor that often occurs to me is pinging, which is what mariners do at sea. Um, they send out a, a sonic sound, which sounds like a ping, apparently, and they, they it hits an object and bounces back, and they do that three times. They triangulate, and they get their bearings. And it's kind of interesting that our our sort of emotional way of referring to to ourselves when we don't know where we stand is we've lost our bearings. Well, when our kids have lost their bearings, they ping us, you know, and I, I, I've never met a disobedient kid in my life. I've only ever met disoriented ones. And, and I've been a, a counselor to, a, you know, a family counselor, a school counselor. I've met some right little rascals, I can tell you. And, and I, but I just don't, the more I worked over the years, the more I've become convinced that these kids are not being willfully, very rarely at least, being willfully defiant. They're being disoriented. And what they're doing is they're pinging us in order to get their their bearings to be oriented um, because it's one of the most painful psychological states we can be in is to be disoriented. We often underestimate it, um, but it's it's tough. And our kids, of course, they're going to turn to us because we're the most consistent, trustworthy people in their lives um, very often. And so it makes sense that we get that we get pinged. But the most important thing about about our kids using us to echolocate is that um, it, it, it's a bit of a um, I've been told by many parents a game changer when we can understand this and really take it in, not just sort of like, oh yeah, okay, and maybe I understand that. But when we really take it in, it shifts a whole bunch. Um, in terms of how we can be at our best when our kids are at their worst. Because if we understand why they're doing it, and then we just look with, with just basically move, look at our kids with inquisitiveness, being inquisitive rather than accusative, and we can look at them and, and wonder, inwardly have a like in, inside talk, inner talk, and just wonder, I wonder why you're so lost. I wonder what's going on for you. On a dime, that moves us from our fight-or-flight brain, our amygdala, adrenaline, cortisol, feeling challenged, feeling what one mother called the red mists rising. I'll never mm. forget that term. I didn't know it at the time, but it's a great description. It's so and perfect. It moves, yeah, isn't it? And it yes. moves us from that, from that reactive place and it moves us into a, a wondering. And the moment we move into wondering out of fight or flight, we've moved into different parts of our being and parts of our brain. It strikes me that that's yeah. also an invitation for curiosity and creativity. Well, it's exactly that, actually. That's exactly what it is. Because it's a because when we move into our limbic system and our brain and thereabouts, we're moving into the let's play brain, into the let's cooperate brain, or the I wonder brain. And our kids pick it up really, really quickly. Because when they've lost it, they when they're angry, when they're defiant, when they're sullen, it's really helpful to remember that they're at their most vulnerable. So it only takes a little bit of a change in our emotional gesture for them to pick up that we're actually a safe base rather than the shouty, scary person that we don't want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's occurring to me as I hear you say this, 
it feels so liberating to feel like I'm being pinged rather than I'm being triggered. <laughs> well put. I've never thought of it. I've never thought of it like that. But you know, it's and and the two are like bedfellows, aren't they? They they sort of ride on a knife edge. Those two, and to, just to understand that, because otherwise, why would our kids, when they're little, do that totally challenging stuff five foot away from us? And then deny it, you know. It's like, is there some undiscovered mental illness in the? I just, I just, I just stood there and watched you do it, and then the child is saying, "Oh, ho, 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 I did not." Right. And you think, "Oh my!" Well, what's happening is that we're being pinged, and I don't know if you have noticed, but when we get pinged a lot, is when kids are going through big changes developmentally. Mm-hmm. They're they're two, two and a half. Nine, nine years old is another example. I have a 15-year-old daughter and there's a lot of pinging about the house at the moment. Um, that's another one. And the other time that kids use us to get their bearings is when there's big changes in the home, when there's a, perhaps a bereavement or a big house, you've moved home or, you know, one a parent has lost their job or, you know, something big has happened, then our kids echolocate us as well. They need us to be a secure base. They need a place that they know they can come back to and that it's safe, and then they can go explore. I know, but isn't it strange how they do it so in, in, in a way that is often less than attractive? <laughs> <laughs> we forget sometimes that that's our job, is just to be that secure, safe place. It's so easy well, to forget. Yeah, you know, and, and, and it's really helpful to remember that it's worse for them. If they're being angry or defiant or sullen, it's, it's hard for us. It's really hard, but it's much harder for them. They're actually trapped in that little brain with that, with that storm swirling around and not knowing what to do and to find their right. way. Right, whereas yeah. we've got choices. Mm. At that moment, they don't. Mm. And it's interesting as you're listing off times in which you know, a lot of pinging happened. I realized it happened at our house when my daughter learned how to read. Because yeah. words came to her like in, in a tremendous download. And it took my husband and I a couple months to recognize like, oh, books did this to her. And we love books, but it was so hard for her to have her perspective on the world change so much because now every cereal box is an entire world she has to read rather than just being the place where the Cheerios are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, or the super expensive granola. Yes, that too. We we mix it up at our house, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's smart. (laughs) You know, I love this part that you, you talk about when you talk about how when they're lost, they're at their most vulnerable. I've also heard you say that they're also at their most receptive in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are super receptive because they they are they are thin, you know, all the layers between a child in the world, all the things that they love to do, all the little little rituals they have and stuff and friends and books and toys there none of that helps them very much when they're really really angry or sad it's that stuff gets fairly quickly stripped away and so that's when they're that's when they're super receptive and you know the way in which we react at that time will basically set the tone for what's going to 
to happen and you know do we go poking at it do we inflame it um or do we not you know there's a there's a lovely little story that that um that, that metaphor which gosh it was i learned a lot from this when i was a teacher i was actually a school counselor but i i would teach some classes and i would take the children down to play some games on this lovely big green field we had but we would play chasing games and some of those kids would rather you know run to london than get tagged so um <laughs> i i had this great big 500 meters of of rope and it was very tangly so i decided to get a rope winder and we would wind up the rope and and that that took care of that but my dear friend and colleague he um wasn't he, he would run his lessons right up to when the bell would go so he'd take 500 meters of rope and he would throw it in the garden shed and you cannot believe how tangled that would become so down i'd bring my class and or classes and we'd open the door and there would be 500 meters of tangled rope and um, the children would all shout, hooray! You know, they, they'd really like it, and which, and I'll explain why, because they would set their watches and they would see how quickly they could untangle it. Now, we found out the secret of how to untangle this huge amount of rope, and that was two things. Firstly, they would send two children right up to the top floor of, the, of a rather tall building, a uh, four-story four high building, to, to open the window and look out from above and, and help us guide what we were doing by looking out the window and shouting down to us. That was number one. And number two, we learned never to pull on a tangle. We learned to open it up and create space and create space. And there were some children who just couldn't resist pulling on the tangle and the and the children out the window up in the building would call out sam you know sarah don't pull on it you know and so we would we'd create space and open it and open it and open it and eventually usually within three minutes which is pretty quick for 500 meters of rope we could have that thing completely opened out but you never pull on a tangle. What and a beautiful metaphor just for life and relationships. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> and so when yeah. our kids are, are angry, do we go pulling on the tangle or do we create space? But but where we create space first and foremost is within ourselves. Yeah. You know, that's reminding me of a shift I've recently made in my home where um, instead of hustling and trying to get everybody ready and doing all the stuff to get us out in the morning, instead of letting myself get upset, I'll just lay down on the floor. <laughs> and then we end up with a puppy pile and everybody's all connected. And from that point, movement happens. Yeah. The saying that I like to turn around is don't, um, don't just, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of turning around to the saying. And the, the saying that I use is don't just do something, stand there. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I like yeah. that. <laughs> because if we can just stand there, you know the saying, count to ten, like when you upset, count to ten. It's actually not true. It's three. Mm. Count to three. Neurologically, it's three. If we can count to three, if we can just stand there and not engage and not engage in that kind of angry way, um, a lot changes. And the 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 the, uh, the sort of interesting dynamic about I don't know if you caught that pit part of the story when the kids went up into the high building and looked out the window, but for me with family life 
with life in general, colleagues, friends, whatever, is how can we be on the dance floor and on the balcony simultaneously? How can we stay engaged with our kids and and be on the dance floor, the so-called dance floor, like (laughs) be there in the busy morning trying to get out to school or whatever it is, but at the same time be on the balcony watching ourselves and 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 with that kind of lo- loving um, objectivity. So when one of our kids starts to mess us around, we don't have to become that person we don't want to be because often when we start shouting, the interesting thing is um, – we can hear ourselves doing it and, and like we can't stop. It's awful, isn't it? <laughs> Just like you hear your, the person on the balcony is witnessing it and, and, the, and our being that's, that, that can be objective like that is witnessing our good stuff and our bad stuff. And You know, that's, that's making tr- me want to quote something I've heard you say back to yourself. And that's, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Yeah, you know, that's a quote from my dear friend uh, um, who I work a lot with, with um, the singer Jewel. Yes. Oh. That's that's a quote from her. And we, we work, we travel and work quite a bit together. And that's something that Jewel writes about in her book, her latest book, Never Broken. Ah, yeah. It, it resonates so deeply, um, you know, because it also makes me think about how all of these moments where we we have this opportunity to observe ourselves, to be on that balcony, but also to be on the dance floor. These are such relational moments. And it's not just about childhood. It's about every aspect of our lives. But as parents, we really have that balcony in a different way than we have it perhaps in other aspects of our lives. We can do, you know, and the balcony can either cause us a lot of anguish Mm -hmm. because we see Mm -hmm. ourselves behaving in a way that we don't want to behave and it comes from a lot of unresolved biographical stuff right. quite often um, and stress day-to-day stress um, so the the balcony the balcony watcher is always there as a parent big time isn't it the balcony watcher is really strongly there um, what I'm what I write about in this next book the being at your best when your kids are at their worst book that I'm working on right now is is how can we make that objective, watcher from the balcony how can we put that to good use rather than cause us anguish mm-hmm. instead of going into a place of shame or judgment mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so what do you what do you recommend how could we do that there's a, you know there's, there seems to be a couple of a couple of things that are right at the um, at the top of the list um, one of the first things that I've noticed um, from talking with parents but also our, we have over uh, approaching um, a thousand simplicity parenting educators around the world that we've trained so we get a lot of feedback it's not just um, my opinion is that um, that in a sense um, one of the things that, that, that we can do to be at our best is to is to um, get off this sort of loop where where every day has to be spectacular, where mm. every day has to be wonderful, where um, where we lose track of the gift of, of an ordinary day, and just to allow days to be ordinary and okay, and to let our kids be bored, and that's fine. Um, because one of the things that triggers a lot of parents is uh, is feeling unseen 
is feeling like they're not being seen, feeling like they're being taken for granted. And we feel like we're being taken for granted two, three, four times a day, every time our kid just drops their clothes on the floor again, drops the towel on the bathroom floor again, gets out the car, closes the door, walks inside without mm. saying thank you again. And we've just turned our lives inside out to try and get that child to soccer practice. And there's no thank you. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's worse than that. They walk in the door and just dump their dirty, smelly bag right you know, where everyone's trying to get in. And so we pick it up and we put it in the washing machine again. And when this goes on and on, and we've done, and we extend so much to making their days be perfect, eventually we snap. You can't live your life feeling unseen and unappreciated without there being an equal opposite, really um, difficult reaction uh, and it builds up over time it builds up a toxic charge many parents i've spoken to um say that really when 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 they think about it um because i i have a you know a private counseling practice and i still do i wouldn't ever dream of stopping that but and this is the most this is the most common piece of feedback is let let your kids um, have downtime. Let them have decompression in their day. Don't try and make every day wonderful. Don't buy into the too much, too soon, too sexy world. Don't try and make everything heightened because it's exhausting and then we snap and then we're not at our best at all. Right. So, so dial it back. And it's hard to dial it back because because the the supersized family life has become so u ubiquitous. It's the new normal, mm. and um, and so it's not easy to to just hit the pause button and say, "Hang on a minute, do, do I do we really need to have, you know, like I've got two or three kids and every single one of them are scheduled up to within an inch of their lives." Do I really, am I a mother or a father or an unpaid Uber driver? Which one am I? <laughs> you know, do we have time to connect as a family and, be, and build a safe base? It or, strikes, yeah, it strikes me yeah. that this is also part of just like this, this busy making society that we live in right now where, where there's so much chaos happening around us that we keep busy so that we don't have to tune into all of it. And we do it as adults and we keep our kids just as busy as well. Well, you know, you, you can't imagine the surprise for me as a young man when I'd been working for um, quite a long time in um, Southeast Asia in various war-torn areas and then um, particularly in the Thai Cambodian refugee camps. And I saw a lot of stressed kids, hyper-stressed kids. But, we, could, you know, we could all get out – anyone could get one's mind around that because they were coming – out of war zones, you might remember the time of the Pol Pot regime and just terrible conflicts um, in Cambodia. I, when when my time was up there, I was just volunteering there. But when my time was done there, I moved to the West, and there through the door, I had a counselling practice. Would come kids from, um, you know, they were from different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, economic backgrounds, but they looked just like the kids in Cambodia. Mm. And I thought, hang on, how are these looking like wartime kids? Mm. Um, and what I came to realize is that it wasn't 
it wasn't um, a declared war, it was an undeclared war on childhood and an undeclared war on family life that was going on, only to become so normal that people had stopped noticing it because the pace of life has become so fast for kids. Very few of us as adults now had to cope with anything like what kids and families have to cope with now that our that we have these elevated levels of anxiety and stress just like the kids in war zones so what we're doing is that we're not living our days we're surviving them mm-hmm. you know what really comes home to me in this is that this slowing down is so much in service to both parents and children I think often when we tell this story, it's either, oh, you end up being an unpaid Uber driver, I can't do it one more time. Or you hear the story of, our kids are so overscheduled, they're you know suffering from stress. And I just really appreciate in your work how it really makes it so holistic to recognize that it's the relationship between parents and children that that comes together when we can honor that for both of us, for all of us, that slowing down and what it really means. Yeah, you know, we'll almost do anything for our kids, you know, and I think... Well, the the reason that I wrote Simplicity Parenting first was that, in a sense, it there's it's a really we're very very motivated um, when we see our kids suffering, and we we know at a gut level, we know that something's not right. You know, so many parents all around the world in, in uh, you know, we have coaches on every continent on the planet, you know, every inhabited continent, and it's like, um, we get this message, no matter what country, that parents' gut instinct is still to protect and provide. And when um, when it's just going too fast, when there's too many demands, and our head is told, no, 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 this is just the way it is. It's just the way it is these days. But our gut brain, our instinctual being is is slower but more tenacious and we know at a gut level, at an instinctual level, that this is not right. It's not. It, it's just so not right that this is moving so fast for our kids, and and it's that gut brain, so to speak, which will, if given, <clears throat> if given permission, um, will speak to us and speak to us clearly. Because a an interesting. An interesting example of this is a, a good a friend and colleague of mine who's an evolutionary neurologist I, um, who um, I asked a question to a couple of years ago. And I said to her, you know, if if we kept off this super fast life that our kids have now in one generation ramped up to, it's a single generation, 20 to 30 years, we're at a whole different level of the pace of life and of the stress and of the hormonal cocktail running through our kids' bodies. If we if we kept stress off today and said, okay, no more stress, how long would it take for the brain to adapt? Because the brain could adapt. And she came back a couple of weeks later and said, well, you know, of course, we, you know, we're both right. The brain would adapt but that's the good news the bad news is that 900 years we've, we've, we've basically gotten 900 years ahead of our kids ability to handle the hormones in their body without going into fight or flight <sighs> right we, this thing has become kind of insane yeah and we and i think that the good news is that more and more and more 
people and particularly parents. I think we're the first wave to really get it because our instinct is to protect. Um, we are, there's more and more people who are now saying this is not right. We need to dial this back, but we also need to live in contemporary society. So there's a balance to be struck here. We can't just we can't leave and and go live in northern Canada. Actually, I've just come back from there. Don't bother. It's just as bad. You know, <laughs> it's it's it, we can't opt out. We are opted in just by being born by living in this world. But how can we be the gatekeepers to be more discerning about what we do as a family and what we don't? There's choices to be made, and I think that's the key to it. Rather than just accepting the new normal of it all, what what I'm suggesting is we need to stand up on the balcony there and say, okay, how much are we how many activities are coming into our home how many how many toys how many books and particularly how much screen time and what's you know with with iPads and phones and computers and TVs how much of all this stuff is coming into our home and how much are we going to limit and there's a very significant groundswell of parents now who are um, are onto this and who are making making choices that may seem outside the mainstream, but um, the mainstream, I just think we're just basically just slightly and only slightly ahead of the curve if we're going to question this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm betting too that you see a lot of blind spots that come up in this process because I'm thinking of my own experience. I had a very, my child was very small, so I didn't go see you uh, one of the first times you came to New Paltz to speak. So I sent my husband and he really, you know, your, your work was one of the first kinds of, um, certainly the only parenting lecture he's ever been to. And this isn't necessarily his mm -hmm. natural world, let's say. <laughs> and, you know, so we talked about limiting screen time and really being conscious of it. And then he looked at me with, with all seriousness. He says, well, it's not TV, it's football. Because he loves to watch college football on the weekends. And he was having his daughters watch it with him. And he honestly saw it as, well, it's not like they're just watching cartoons. It's football. Right. And, right. and that was in trying to honor what's important to him and, and who he is. And also say, but honey, what are we missing here in the bigger picture? Yeah, you know, the way, the way I look at, at screen use, and screen use is... It's like a 25-year unguarded social experiment that's not going so well. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's um, you know, social experiments normally normally have guidelines. Um, right. And, and I've I got to ask, why did Steve Jobs not have screens for his own kids? Mm -hmm. right? And when he, his wife finally, you know, gave an answer to that, because that was a big question, because it, when it came out, in a New York Times interview that his kids had extremely limited um, exposure to screens. The answer was because he wanted his kids, they wanted their kids to uh, want their kids to be innovative and creative. And how can, and, and his answer was, how could your kid possibly be innovative and creative if they're sitting there looking at other people's innovations and other people's creativity? Right. We, we forget that a screen it might be creative, but it's someone else's creativity. And many of the, of the screen makers and the software makers and the hardware makers, 
they they don't have their kids. They have very limited access to the screens themselves because these are extremely creative, innovative, adaptable people, and they understand that this is not what you do for kids if you want them to succeed. They just they just sell it to us poor schmucks, you know, to to <laughs> to to buy it. My my view on screens though is is that it would be really silly to be anti screen. I, I don't want to be anti anything really. It's it's that I'm pro, I'm passionately pro connection. Mm-hmm. I'm not anti screen, and I'm pro connection to four main things. And in a nutshell, I'm passionately pro connection to nature. Really connecting to the natural world for kids. So much is learned about grit, determination, problem solving, wonder, awe in the world. So much is learned when kids can have connection to nature. The second one is connection to friends. And I don't mean friending. I mean friends. So much is worked out. In, in in difficult situations with friends, so much joy, so much anguish, so much difficulty, so much social and emotional intelligence comes through interaction with real friends, not friending when someone displeases you and you unfriend them. There's little learning in unfriending someone who causes you discomfort. The, the third connection is connection to family. Family is just, as we know, is just huge. Do we want the screen to grow our kids up and the values on a screen? Or do we want the values of our family? And it's really difficult to compete against the marketing forces, which become marketing values, which become acquisition culture, as opposed to the, to the, the, the true north of, of family values versus the magnetic north of screen values and marketing forces and the last and final one and perhaps the deepest right at the core of these concentric connections as i refer to them is connection to oneself are my values going to be informed if i'm a little boy little girl uh, or a teenager are they going to be formed by me do i filter all this through my world and now i know who i am or am i some two-dimensional cartoon like character who's got to speak a certain way, be a certain way, wear certain clothing, have certain devices that the marketers try and tell us is absolutely essential. I just don't want our kids, precious little souls and beings to be buried under a toxic landfill of pop culture. And so finally, the the thing uh, that concerns me about screens is that screens are, are time bandits it takes time to have connection with nature friends take time family take time and being on my own takes time and what's happening now is that is that the average kid in america this is a kaiser family foundation study from 2011 found that the average american 12 year old 12 to 18 year old is exposed to seven and a half hours of screens a day um, and that's up now to nine and a quarter, apparently. And so, you know, it's just all those things, nature, friends, family, and self, it takes time. And screens are just robbing us of that time and robbing us of those deep connections. And so for me, it's a question of time for connection. And there's only so much time per day. Do I want to give it to screen or do I want to give it to family or friends 
And for me, there's no choice. I, I want to give time to my kids for family and nature and friends and not time for someone else's creativity on a screen. I love that. And it also brings me to something else that I've heard you talk about. One part is the difference between loneliness and aloneness, because if I'm going to connect to myself, I need time alone. I need to make sure that my kids have that time as well, um, in addition to connecting to me. And how to make those first steps? Yeah, well, it's super important that kids know the difference between loneliness and aloneness. And if, if children are very connected into social networking um, and very connected into um, digital communication, often um, aloneness is confused with loneliness. And, to, and so kids get a desperation to be always connected and to not be connected equates to loneliness. Whereas kids who have real sort of screen time limits in their lives can handle quite, quite well being alone, can play alone, mm -hmm. can be alone, can be outside alone. Because many of the things that, that we, we, where we have breakthroughs as human beings, as things occur to us is when we're alone. And it's because we remove all the distractions and we can just get back to what, to what our core is now a little kid is not going to say i'm returning to my core <laughs> a little kid is just messing around and but they make breakthroughs in those moments when they're when they're just messing around and they're also frankly decompressing they're they're they're, they're sort of digesting all the stuff that's come up in the day now if they're really plugged in kids and they're super into social networking I got to I got to worry about that about where is the decompression coming where is the digestion coming it's not that I'm again not anti screen it's just that screens are everywhere they're everywhere in the world they're in libraries they're in they're in gas stations they're they're just all over the place they're in pretty much every friend's home that our kids will go to has screens so for me it's a question of balance just like yes. eating has got to be balanced like waking and time and sleeping time has got to be balanced there's got to if there's screen time in a kid's life there has to be no screen time yeah. to have balance but honestly, the only place we can control no screen time is home. Yes. It's the only place. We've got to We can't control it anywhere take charge else. Of it. No, it's outside our sphere of control. But what's in our sphere of influence is home. And and so to introduce screens in at at home um, is very questionable to se severely limit really strictly limit screen time as home at home is not being weird it's just doing what we all know is essential for health and that's just have balance mm -hmm. and yet that balance often begins with the adults doesn't it totally yeah yeah it's it's a it's a decision we make but you know uh, with all the years since 2011 that I've mentioned this figure, seven and a half hours or so a day of screen exposure, and by the way, that, that didn't include school, school time exposure. What? I was out of school time. Wow. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, the New York Times article said, if your kid's awake, they're on a screen. That was the title of it. That's, that mm. was the intimation. But the, um, I've met very few parents who will say, yep, that's my kid. It's always someone else's kid. It, like, but most parents are, I find, starting to make screen decisions. And if our kid 
is truly not exposed to seven and a half hours of screens a day, if we really sit down and say, okay, let's just take the, let's work, work through day by day the last week, we sometimes get a surprise. It can be right up there. But if it's not seven to nine hours, then hooray for us because we've made some decisions. We've probably put some limits in place and we've been gatekeepers. And that's, that's just really helpful and it's really hopeful. Mm-hmm. So, so many parents are now starting to make a questioning the new normal of, of very low restriction on screen use. Yeah, I know for us, it was the hardest thing to recognize. My, my daughter's in public school and, and screens were just absolutely part of it since kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And it, it blew me away at first. And now I, have a, I now she's in second grade and I've realized it's, um, I've accepted it as normal because it's just the way it is and I can't fight it. And we control screens at home, but it, it shock, it was a shock to the system at first. And it only took two years for me to say, oh, well, that's what they do, I, I guess. And my experience yes. is so different. My, my daughters are in a Waldorf school, and um, we don't have the same experience. And I have a very, very sensitive child who, if she goes into a restaurant and there's a screen on, she can't eat. And we have to either take food to go or go somewhere else. I, I tried to yeah. eat with my family at a restaurant with three different sporting events playing over yeah. my shoulder. And both my husband and daughter were transfixed. And in a way, you rec- I recognize that that's because there isn't so much screen time at home. Hopefully, yeah. that's why it's such a drug. But wow, it's hard to cope with and, and keep what Kim's saying about the connection yeah. alive. Well, one of our worries with, with screen users is, is like, hey, hang on, if, if our kids don't um, have screens, won't that make them really, really vulnerable to it? Won't that, you know, um, just addict them later on? Which is really, you know, because people say, well, screens are the real world. And whenever I hear that mm. said, I said, pardon me, do you understand you just said screens are the real world? Like, like, <laughs> you know, and, and yet I hear it all the time. But, you know, so I took a risk. I, I wasn't sure. Who, who can be sure about all this? I really wasn't sure. But with my two kids, I raised them without screens. Um, I had a laptop for my work, but it would just be closed. Not not surreptitiously when they walked into the room, I'd pretend I didn't have it. It's just, I just didn't, you know, it wasn't a part of their life. And the emailing and all that sort of stuff would happen when, particularly when they were little, it would happen when they were in bed. But the main message I wanted to give them as they grew up is a screen is a tool. And daddy and mama use it as tools. We're not playing games on it. We're not, you know, um, you know, getting into Facebook and all this sort of stuff. It's a, it's a tool. We use it for a short time and then it goes away. So I, I raised them without screens. Um, and my daughter now is just going on 18 and she got her first computer when she was 16. Um, and she uses it as a tool. Is she addicted to it? Absolutely not. You know, it, is she amazed by it? Sort of. But she's got, she in her habit life, just the things that she does, she she draws, she plays music, she makes stuff, she hangs out, she sits and stares out the, the window, she goes out into the garden, um, she has her own plot, you know, little thing going on in the garden, she always has, both of them always have. So in a sense, they, they've been raised up, they've been grown with other habits, other things that are just normal to do. So when screens come into their lives, it's okay, it's fine, but they keep doing that other stuff because it's because it's healthy habit. 
So the screen do doesn't dominate in the earlier years because if you've got a screen in a little child's life and they're spending a lot of time on an iPad, pretty hard because of the dopamine levels that rise on a screen to ask a child to take part in, in family chores because family chores don't give you pleasure, whereas the dopamine levels from gaming give you pleasure. And it's ironic because, you know, in my private practice, people come to me um, all the time with some pretty tricky discipline issues, kids that are just blowing their parents off. And what's one of the things that um, I ask a parent if they really want to get serious about this, do they want to go on a one-month screen-free brain reset and a bunch of parents have got to the, you know, the just, just they're pulling their hair out. So they say, okay, I'll do it. I'll try it. And it's amazing how rapidly, how many kids become more biddable, become easier to handle, will follow directions. And parents say, well, that is incredible. Well, that actually, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased things change, but it's not incredible. It's very credible. Because what's happening is that the dopamine levels of the child are now starting to drop. And that means not everything has to be pleasurable. Because it's not pleasurable to clean up your room. <laughs> you know, not always. But it is pleasurable to do it with mum and dad and, and fold things up and chat when you're doing it. But that takes time. And so it's time and dopamine. Dopamine levels up, time level down. Whereas when you have a low or no screen, it's building connection. It's building exactly. the connection. It's building yeah. it as you yeah. sometimes talk about it. It's that um, that Sibanyu and the uh, Nahona, mm -hmm. right? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's just such a beautiful, um, another such a beautiful story. There's so many beautiful stories. I could listen to you for days, Kim. But I yeah it was a time when when um I, I was um uh, working traveling in in africa and southern africa in particular and um i would often hear at my room where i'd often uh stay um overlooked a marketplace and i would hear in the morning the market folks setting up very very early in the morning and they would be calling out subanu subanu subana depend on male female and and there'd be this greeting, I see you, I see you. That's what Subana, Subana means, I see you. And then the refrain would come, you would hear it, you Subano, and the refrain would come, Nahona. Nahona means, so now I am here, brother or sister, I am here. I'm only here in Africa, you can only be there in this greeting. I, I can only be here if you see me. I see you, okay, so now I am here mm. you can only be truly here when you're seen and this is what living a balanced simple family life brings is that it brings connection it brings to a to a family we see each other we have we have we try and remove as many distractions to us seeing each other because i know it's a cliche but the childhood years go by in an eye blink you know my eldest daughter just left for germany um just last week and she's gone and she's up and she's away and we'll see her some more but man where did those 18 years go mm. and my younger kids you know going on 16 and these years go by so fast why would we not want to absolutely optimize this feeling of 
we see each other. I see you. And this feeling of nohona, of and I am seen. This is what I think lies at the at the kind of deepest instinct of every parent is the wish to see their children and 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 to have the children feel feel they are present and 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 loved. I think, you know, feeling that we matter is is such a primal human need. It's it is where connection stems from. It's it's everything about attachment. I also see in my practice, and I wonder if you see this too, Kim, that some really struggle with being seen. Well, you see, you mentioned attachment, and what we have now going on in much of contemporary um, society is is rather than have a parent-child relationship and an attachment in 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 that way what 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 we see is is what i think of as a horizontal attachment where parents are attaching to children as buddies as siblings so we have a, a generation of children being raised without a loving authoritative presence where parents where we're, we're fed this stuff on screens particularly where to be a successful parent means you've got to be you've got to be friends with your kid i see i have no problems being friendly with my child but am i friends with them no no that's not my aim my aim is to give them the loving boundaries that they need in life so that they can feel secure and when you, when we attach when we have a horizontal attachment rather than a vertical attachment um there's a problem because kids will attach to other kids horizontally that's fine they'll always have friends and peers and all that sort of stuff but when the vertical attachment comes to to a parent and you have the vertical crossing uh, intersecting with the horizontal that's the formation of character that's the formation of self when you have a, when you have kids who have friends who consistently call them buddies or bud or or bro or, and the kids call their parent dude and you've got all this sort of stuff going on it's very very confusing to a kid very confusing indeed because then when they hit school and you've got teachers who are not bros they're not buddies they're not the teachers are teachers and then you have a child they don't mean to be naughty they don't mean to be disrespectful it's just that they don't recognize an adult they see a teacher they're calling for the class to be come to come to order come to come to quiet they're going to get on now and the, and the kids just keep right on talking and the teacher kind of reminds them and they keep right on talking it's because the kids are horizontally attached and the teacher is just a part of the of, you know it's it's a, it's a buddy right we're all buddies and it sets our kids up for a lot of trouble at school um and they don't mean to be disrespectful it's just that, that what alternatively we can do is have like i write about in the soul of discipline book we can have these loving limits that that change as a child grows of course they expand but we um it's very um much a pause point for me when i when i feel that you know uh, my, that i'm putting too much emphasis on being friends with my kids as opposed to being friendly i do, i don't want to, uh, to have a family that is 
basically a th- sort of thinly veiled Lord of the Flies scene going on. It, it puts the connection and the, that placement back on being a guiding force, being someone who can, who can hold that stability. Yeah, you know, as, as our kids grow, the metaphor I use is moving from the governor to the gardener to the guide. And when our kids are little, they just need us to be the governor of the family state. And it's a little, I mean, it's Rhode Island, right? It's a little state. Um, and um, they just need, they need us to, to make the decisions. Um, they, they, they need, um, they don't need open-ended choices. They need you may choices. In other words, you may choose between this cereal and this cereal, and that choice is okay with me. That's a you may choice. That's a governor-guided choice. But, you know, when, but when, they're, when they're growing up, when they're sort of 10, 11, 12 years old, that's when we move to the gardener stage where, uh, you know, a, a, a good gardener, and the reason I use that metaphor is a good gardener is listening in, watching, listening, checking the soil, checking the climate, ch- looking at the sky. But when, a, you know, and really listening, just like our kids really need listening to when they're nine, ten years old, my kids would hear it all the time over and over and ask them, what, what's their plan? What would they like to do? You can tell me your plan. I'm listening really, really carefully. Then they tell me the plan. And then myself or my wife make the decision. See, a good gardener will listen, watch, but then know when to plant, know when to harvest. And and I think a lot with our teenage kids, our 10, 11, 12-year-old kids, we've got to relieve them of the stress of making big life decisions because they're not there yet. They're just not there. But do they need listening to? Oh, yeah. Otherwise, they'll get very upset and, like, say, don't treat me like a baby. And they're right, right? So then the final step is when our kids are um, are growing up and they're 16, 17, 18, 19. That's when we need to be in the guide principle because a good guide knows the terrain. But a good guide, you know, some of the best conversations I've ever had with a teenager have been about their direction because teenagers can be, they can be spectacularly disinterested in our opinions, um, but they're very, very interested in their direction. So if something happens, it's not so great. You know, if you if your son or your daughter gets involved in like alcohol and it goes to a party and was drinking, then the conversation is around: was is that a distraction to where you want to be in life, or is that a direction? And sweetheart, that's a distraction. Let's just talk about how we can get you where you want to go with a minimum of distractions. And that for me is the key to it all. But as a society, we've got it back to front. We're we're parenting little kids like they're 18. And then when they get to being 17, 18, and it's all cut and loose and not going so well, we try and haul in the boundaries and treat them like a governor. We've kind of got it back to front. Yeah. I'm thinking of that guide question and that's such a such a thing that I think as as parents as adults we're we're all looking at all the time too is that a distraction or a direction right like when when a parent is on on a digital device is that a distraction or a direction Well our kids you know it's like we're distracted parenting Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's distracted driving, and we know how dangerous that is. But so is distracted parenting. If if we're if we're you know with our kids, and we're at the park, and 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 a text comes in and it pings in our pocket. If we pay attention to that ping in our pocket, our kids will ping even louder. They they will they 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 realize that being good 
and being compliant and doing stuff that's nice and cute, that'll get us a little bit of attention as a child. But what gets us a ton of attention and quick is to be outrageous. And so a lot of parents, we, what we're doing is we're, we're sort of setting ourselves up a little bit because our kids are in what I think of as the attentional wars. They are really upping the ante of their behavior so that um, they can get our attention because our attention is becoming so distracted with devices. Mm. Oh, that's so, so clear. Yeah, it's so real. <laughs> you know, Kim, one of, one of the things that we like to ask all of our guests on this podcast, and it might just be a good landing place for us, is how did you get into this transformational work? What, what relationships or stories in your lives led you to this place where, where you now bring this transformation to other people? You, you bring this awareness of what are our distractions and what direction do we want? How can you simplify? What were the moments in your life? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's so universal. You see, my work didn't actually, in this field, didn't start in the West. It started in in war-torn areas of Southeast Asia. And so for me, this was universal. It is, and it remains universal. I mean, my books have been translated into, I think it's like 27 or something languages now. I don't say that to be self-grandizing. It's just, it's universal, you know, that, that, that we are getting the message that we, this is, we've reached peak stress, if you know what I mean. There's peak oil, and now there's, but there's peak stress. And we've reached it. I, I really don't, I don't say that to be dramatic. I, I don't know um, scientifically how much more we can handle on a day-to-day -day level. Um, something has to shift for us to be emotionally sustainable, not just, I don't mean just sustainable. We can, we can drive a Prius and buy Birkenstocks and recycle as much as we like, but and that's great. That's all very important, of course. But there's also just sustainability in terms of our emotions. And so what really brought me into this work was realizing the universality of it, realizing how just across the globe, um, if we, it's almost like, you know, some of us fight for um, environmental change and 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 the burning off of 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 the layers of the earth, literally through global warming. There's been a you know, as we know, um, but my stance, my choice in my life has been to say, you know what? There's also a stripping back of the layers around human beings. There is a, a burning off of the atmosphere of the layers around a family, and this and there's just too much coming at us, and we have to not just deal with with climate change on the planet, but but actually deal with climate change within the family, and actually bring bring a, a sense of cooling, um, of cooling all that heat that is coming back to family life because I know it's a cliche, but there is nothing more important than our children. And we talk about what's going to happen in, in for our grandchildren and our great grandchildren in terms of the planet. And that's super important, but we are at, we are already at inundation at family life. We're, we're actually about two generations ahead of global warming in terms of family warming. We are already at that point now. And that's what, 
gets me up in the morning and that's what keeps keeps me being as not so much an echo eco warrior <laughs> but but a, a warrior for the protection of family life thank you so much kim for this opportunity just to to sit with your wisdom and i know our listeners are going to have so many opportunities to look at themselves and their families and hopefully with a lot of compassion and gentleness because you certainly bring that to this conversation thank you so much well thank you for the invitation it's a of course it's a real honor to speak with you in the community thank you is there any way that our listeners can get a hold of you can can get connected to your work and your trainings yeah, you know, it, it, in the normal old uh, way through through the uh, through the screens, of course, that we don't have, um, uh, and yeah, really. Um, but you know, screens are a tool, and the tool um, that we have is the Simplicity Parenting website. So, just Simplicity Parenting is the portal um, through which anyone interested in in looking a little further into this, looking at our trainings in particular, because our trainings are simple little trainings. To become a parent educator is a very simple training. I mean, it would be ironic if it was complicated, right? Um, um, (laughs) And so it's a very simple training. We also have a simplicity community where that's new, and that's where I'm really delighted because parents who have got these conundrums about, hey, everything's coming at us too fast. It's booming. It's buzzing. How do we simplify? How do we balance? Um, we've got a simplicity community now, which um, is very busy and active with parents supporting parents in how to balance and simplify their lives. And, and that can also be accessed through simplicityparenting.com. Oh, wonderful. And you have a book coming out next year, I believe it is. Is that right? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of books um, uh, scheduled. The, um, the Being at Your Best When Your Kids Are at Their Worst book should be out yet, yeah, uh, 2018. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because that focuses on us as adults, whereas my previous books have, have focused on our, on our kids. Oh, so wonderful. Thank you so much for all the light and the work that you bring into the world. Oh, and to you. Thank you. And please remember, this August, Revision, Explore Your Stories, Shape Your Future is going to be the first Practice of Being Seen retreat for therapist healers. Find out more at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. We want to thank today's sponsor, Plum Tea Deluxe. Do you love trying new teas? Well, treat yourself to a Plum Deluxe Tea of the Month subscription. For only $10 a month, you receive hand-blended, all-organic, loose-leaf tea thoughtfully chosen for the season. Tea Club members also enjoy special benefits like gift swaps, free shipping on all purchases, and access to a very loving tea community. A tea subscription also makes a fantastic gift for clients, colleagues, and friends. Caffeine-free options are always available too. Visit plumteadeluxe.com slash tea and join now. We're so thrilled to have Plum Deluxe as a member of the Practice of Being Seen community. And we have a feeling that you're going to want to be a part of their community too. Have a look over at their website. You will be amazed by all the different flavors. Rebecca and I had a ball choosing our favorites. To receive special offers from our sponsors, including Plum Deluxe, we invite you to visit practiceofbeingseen.com and sign up for our newsletter. Enjoy your tea. For more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. 
Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio. <laughs>